Hello, and welcome back to Why Morocco, a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to spotlighting some of the inspiring and creative personalities who share my love of the North African Kingdom of Morocco. My name's Mandy Sinclair, PR consultant and freelance writer, tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours owner, and host of this podcast. As you sit back and listen, it's my hope that you'll leave feeling inspired to pay a visit or motivated to start planning that trip to the Kingdom of Morocco. Here in Marrakesh, Ramadan is in full swing, and I have to say I have more energy than I expected. However, maybe not quite as much energy as this week's guest. Alice Morrison describes herself as an adventurer, and she has just completed an 81-day trek along the Draw River in Morocco's south. Now that's some commitment. But if you've been there, you'll understand why it's without a doubt my favorite region of Morocco. Palm groves, adobe houses, and casbahs that dot the landscape. And of course, the flowing Draw River. In fact, I considered buying a house in one of the old casbahs in a palm grove. But that idea is on hold, at least for now. Accompanied by a team of guides, Alice witnessed the effects of climate change and learned about nomadic life during her hike. But what really fascinated me about her adventure was her discovery of a former village while sat atop a sand dune one evening. As an anthropology lover, I think I would have been in my element had I been along for the trek. She tells us more about this on the podcast, so let's listen in to hear her talk about her adventures in Morocco's south. So thank you for coming by, Alice, because you are literally hot off the trails of the Draw Valley. I am. So you hiked the entire distance of the Draw River, which is located in the south of Morocco. Is that correct? I did. We started um, in Ouazazat at the barrage where the rivers um, converge. And then we start, went through Jebel Sagro, the mountain of drought, down into the rich oases, which was so beautiful, full of dates and greenery. And then out at the other end over the great dunes, Ergshkaga, skirted it. Uh, and then into what I'm going to call the wilderness, which is just days and days and days of stones and fantastic landscape in a way because it's flat, flanked by mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's wildlife, nobody, you know, very few people there, some nomads, and then came out of the ocean. Oh, wow. So the Draw Valley ends at the Atlantic Ocean? It certainly does, yeah. The Draw River flows into the Atlantic. Oh, I didn't know that. Because you also did another trek that was like the Atlas to the Atlantic, is that right? Yes, I did that in 2015. Um, I went from the highest point in North Africa, mm-hmm. and this was sponsored by Epic Morocco. So they wanted an adventure. So we went from the highest point in North Africa, which is Mount Tufkal, obviously, mm-hmm. and we went straight across the Atlas Mountains to Agadir, myself and Rashid Eight Al Mahajoub. Uh, it took us 12 days. And the thing about that trek that sticks in my mind so much was that we started at the top of Mount Tubkal, but because we don't have a helicopter, we had to climb Tubkal. And the whole time I was climbing it, I was thinking, this doesn't even count for the adventure. That's <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of like ripped off in a way. Um, and so the Draw River, how many kilometers did you walk and how long did it take you? We walked, we, we've estimated it, we, we walked 1,500 kilometers and it took 81 days. Oh my gosh. Do you have like blisters or like any wounds after something like that? Do you know, I, I'm, 
I feel like I should say, oh my goodness, it was so Uh difficult. You know, my leg fell off and then I had to bind it up with camel spit. But in (laughs) fact, it was an absolute joy. And I think that was partly because it was a well-funded expedition. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jean-Pierre Dachary of um, Dardaif, Desert in Montagne, Morocco, he organized it and he has 40 years of experience. And he himself has done um, a lot of very, very long camel treks. It's his own camels. It's his own men who are salaried. They work with him all the time. Mm -hmm. So we had food drops. Um, It was really a proper expedition. And that made a massive difference. You know, we never went really into that extreme area when you're carrying all your own stuff Mm -hmm. and, and so on. So actually... We walked four to five hours a day. And yes, there were some days it was hard, but I was in reasonably good shape. And in fact, it was a joy. It was a joy. So no, I mean, of course you get tired. You can't avoid it. The men got tired. You know, it's not just me. But, But it was so full of wonder and excitement and things happening that it didn't matter if your feet hurt a little bit. Yeah. No, I completely understand because um, the Draw Valley for me is one of my favorite areas of Morocco, and I would love to own a little house in a casbah in a palm grove. I mean, I even went to um, Agdez in January with the hopes of like just scoping it out. But anyway, um, so I was absolutely fascinated by this journey that you've taken, um, especially because you talked about that you discovered a lost city whilst sitting on a sand dune. So please tell me more. (laughs) Well, I'm, of course, I'm waiting for someone to say lost. You're kidding. I know where that is. (laughs) Um, So what happened was we were, we, we, obviously we were not on the beaten track and we were not always exactly on the draw. We, We wandered off course a lot because we had the camels you know, we had to find water, so we had to go from well to well. Um, and we just passed a very tiny clump of palm trees. We were camped about three to five kilometers away from the famous uh, rock carvings. And I, we, we camped, I, I needed signal, I needed to call my mum. So I climbed up the blooming mountain behind the camp um, after we'd bivouacked and everything. So it was about four o'clock. I got up to the top, got my 3G, one bar, and I was like, <laughs> you know, frantically what's zapping away. And the sun was going down. I'm like, what's zapping? What's happening? And then I just looked up and I was like, oh, that's weird. That looks like ruins. And I mean, there are ruins on the way because yeah. there's Azib, there's the nomad enca- uh, encampments, the shepherds' uh, enclosures. So of course there are ruins everywhere. But I was like, that isn't, that is a house. So I zipped up to have a look and there was a definite house in front of me with two rooms. It was quite clear, a doorway. And I was like, Oh, and then I looked around and there were other houses. And I was like, this is definitely a proper set of ruins. It's not what you would expect to find there. So anyway, it's getting dark. So I scrambled back down the mountain. And the next day, Jean-Pierre, who organized the expedition, was coming in to meet me to show me the rock carvings. And as I say, he's been working there for 40 years. So I was like, Jean-Pierre, Jean-Pierre, can we go up the mountain? Because I think I found something. And he's, avec grand plaisir. So we trog back up the mountain. Um, and it's there. And of course, in the full daylight, this town city stretched over three hillsides and we kept going and around the corner there were more and we could see a street you can see it clearly laid out and of course Jean-Pierre is terribly excitable so he was going impressionnant impressionnant and I was like have you heard of because he so knows the areas like I've never heard of it I don't know what it is but it must be connected to those rock paintings rock carvings further down the road so um yeah so how old do you estimate the village to be? 
Again, we are absolutely guessing. I mean, seriously. But if you tie it to the rock carvings, you're looking, people say, 4,000 years. So that is the kind of time frame. And at that time, in that area, there was more water, of course. Not of course, but there was. And there was wildlife, so people could sustain life in a different way. Now it, it, would, it would be very difficult to live there um, because there's, there's nothing there. But those millennia past, there were things. So, you know, I mean, that I think everyone who lives in Morocco or visits Morocco and gets out to the cities or even in the cities, you are walking on history here. Mm-hmm. It's a delight. Every step you take, you can find something for yourself. And I think that, for me, is the real excitement of this country. Oh, I completely agree. You never know what's behind a door, what's even exactly. in your backyard, pretty much. Yeah. But so before we started recording, you had talked to me about like being an adventurer and an explorer. But like, do things like that not make you want to be an archaeologist as well? Oh, seriously, if there was a world enough and time, I would be an archaeologist and I would definitely be a geologist too, because it's so fascinating and I don't know anything about it. Uh, I think the next best thing I can do, though, is hopefully get something going where I can get other people involved and go with people who have more knowledge than me, mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm like, a, like a baby. You know, I'm looking at everything with brand new eyes, whereas if somebody had, had those skills, they could absolutely certainly uncover yeah. more. Wow. And so what does it mean to be an adventurer or an explorer to you? Well, first of all, I am self-styled. And what makes me laugh about myself is so I started signing my emails, Alice Morrison, adventurer. And then, of course, I'm under pressure to do adventures. (laughs) 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 Because if you don't, if you just sit at home and watch Netflix, you know. Um, So what I try to do is I try to mix two things. One, I, I look at the world and everything I do as an adventure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because there are tiny adventures for all of us every single every day. Every day in Morocco, for sure. Every day in Morocco. Mm-hmm. Every day, everywhere. everywhere. Mm-hmm. If you just approach it with like an open heart and what am I going to find out? And instead of when something goes wrong, which it yeah. almost does, instead of, you know, yeah. getting very cross, you're like, oh, well, let's see what's going to happen yeah. as a result of this. So it's an attitude of mind, but then I also do do things. So going down the draw, going mm-hmm. across the Atlas, I've got another thing, hopefully, for next uh-huh. year. Um, in Morocco? I, I'm not sure yet, perhaps mm-hmm. starting here. And then, then also very, I take on some quite big physical challenges. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, your listeners can't see me, but you can vouch I'm a very ordinary person. Mm-hmm. But I have run around Everest, I have done the Marathon des Sables, I have cycled from Cairo to Cape Town in a race. So again, I just choose things which I'm like, I could never do that. Wow. unless I put my mind to it a lot. And then I follow the path to try and succeed in that goal. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. But I want to go back to chatting about your walk because um, you noticed firsthand the impact of climate change while you were walking along the draw. You even just referenced it about this village. It couldn't sustain itself. So what did you witness? How has the draw changed? Okay, so again, bear in mind that I'm not an expert. So this is, this is a, witness is a great word, mm-hmm. and that's the word I'm using. And also, I'd like to say straight up that, you know, this is not a Moroccan government problem. Mm-hmm. This is a world problem mm-hmm. that is happening to hit Morocco. Yeah. If you look at Google, Ma- uh, Google Maps of Africa on the satellite, you'll see there's a lovely rich green brand, band in the middle, and then there's desert at the top and the bottom. Mm-hmm. And I mean, desertification is increasing every year. Mm-hmm. It, Morocco is doing its best. It's got the Green Morocco program. It, you know, it ships water out to the nomads. We've got the biggest solar power 
project in Africa. And the dams as well. And the dams. So, I mean, it's not for lack of trying. And I'm pleased to see those efforts. But what I witnessed was one of the men I was walking with, Brahim Ahalfi. He'd done that part 20 years before. And (laughs) we're walking along this wilderness, this kind of stony, barren wilderness, which has its own beauty, of course. But we were with five camels and we're walking from well to well and the camels need to eat. And even the scrawniest little shrub was dead. Mm. And the nomads had left because they couldn't sustain their lives there. And they had been able to because 20 years ago they were there. Mm-hmm. So you're not seeing an area that was incredibly fertile that's gone. What you're seeing is an area that, that has just, it wasn't fertile, but it did sustain life. And now it cannot and that was very um, depressing, actually. And Brahim, bless him, was walking beside me going, they called me Zahra on the trip. Zahra, Zahra, everything's dead. Everyone's left. And, we, you know, this was for like days and days and days and days. It wasn't just one day. It was like two weeks, two and a half weeks of just walking through death. And to me, it seemed like, you know, we're, I mean, I'm British, so we're arguing about Brexit, we're arguing about this and that, but there are really significant things happening. And whether there's always been climate change, climate always changes, but surely we should be harnessing all our fantastic scientific minds, which, you know, we're making so much progress elsewhere. Can't we be working strongly towards some way to harness whatever we have to reverse these changes? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so how is this changing local life beyond pushing people out of the villages? Are they then moving into uh, cities like Wazazart? Or what's happening with the, the people who once came from the draw? Are they still there? Or what are they? Well, I mean, the draw, the draw is very long. And, and mm-hmm. obviously, part of it is extremely successful and fertile, mm-hmm. you know, and people have a good living there. But even in those, so for example, even in Agds, which is very yes. successful as a place, a lot of people are living in Agds, but now they're working in Warsazat. Mm-hmm. So the modern, it's not just about certification, it's about also, um, even in, in places yeah. that are fertile, it's about modern life. Yeah. You know, children don't always want to work on a, on yeah. a date farm. Yeah. It's really hard physical work. And, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's got their mobile phone. Everyone sees that life can be different in the cities. They're educating yeah. themselves. They want to change. Mm-hmm. People are going to school now. This generation is, is you know, infinitely more literate mm-hmm. than its grandparents' yeah. generation. Mm-hmm. And they want different things from life. So modernization is is a pace is changing things as in our own countries yeah. people are moving to the city from the countryside mm-hmm. because life in the country is hard and so you did have some local guides with you along the way and you said that Brahim was a former nomad is that right I'm really happy to be able to talk about my guides because of mm-hmm. course they they are the the drivers of the trip I mean you know I just followed along <laughs> um learned how to load a camel so I had Brahim Ahalfi Brahim Butrum and Adli Ben Yusuf. And Adi is the son of a nomad. He's from a nomad family. He was only 23. Um, so he brought all that lore with him. Um, Brahim Ahalfi is a grand homme du désert. So he comes from Eid Bugmez. Both the Brahims came from Eid Bugmez. But Brahim Ahalfi has been working again in the desert for 30, 20, 30 years. You know, knows everything. Taught me how to track a desert fox. Taught me how to look for the signs of a well. Um, wow. would discover things for me like a clutch of snake's eggs so that was wonderful and then my last Brahim Butrum, a genius you'll love this mm-hmm. a genius chef 
a genius chef. We had the best food. Extraordinary. And sometimes like for a treat, he'd whip a cake up. And we'd have like a cake in the middle of the wilderness. And that, believe you me, there is nothing that lifts the mood as much as a cake. Tell me about some of the food that you ate. Were you um, like subjected to like camel meat or anything, camel milk or anything like that? Well, I've, I'm, I actually really like both camel meat and camel milk, but it would have been a bit rude because we had our five camels with us mm-hmm. if we d- dispatched one of them and eaten it. I think the others might have been dismayed, and in fact, I would have been dismayed. Mm-hmm. But um, I actually really like camel milk. I find it really fresh and sweet, especially mm-hmm. if it's cold. And camel meat is like excellent venison, I think, excellent steak. But no, on the expedition, we, we ate very simple food, but it was very, very good. So we would have, I would have porridge. I'm Scottish, so I made my porridge in the morning. And then we would have a little snack at 11. We'd have some biscuits and some an orange. And I don't know if you know this, but camels love orange peel. They really? love it. Yes. They yeah. thought they were part of the snack. They would have their nose waiting for you to eat. If you, were, if you weren't quick with your orange segment, it would be nicked. Uh-huh. Um, and then I, at lunch, we would, uh, if we'd had a... If we still had fresh food, we would have salad mm-hmm. with tin sardines and bread, which we made in the bread oven. Well, Addi made, actually. Uh, so first, like you would just build a little hut. No, he, we had a buta, we had five camels, so we had a, a butagaz. Oh wow! Oh oven. yeah, okay. Wow. Yeah, because we needed bread. Mm-hmm. There's three of us, so yeah. four of us. So um, and then for dinner, then we'd have at five o'clock. We'd have cascarut um, again. We'd have lamas, as they say, mm-hmm. and uh, So that would be again probably fresh stuffed bread. Sometimes bread stuffed with um, animal fat. If we still had a bit of meat and vegetables. And Berber coffee, spicy coffee, mm. milk, mm. lots of sugar, um, ginger, pepper, mm, delicious. Mm. Yeah. And then for supper, we'd have vegetable, vegetable stew almost yeah. always. And soup for a soup with bread and dates. So we had plenty of food. Uh-huh. Wow. So tell me about, you mentioned earlier that Brahim uh, told you or taught you how to find a well. I mean, the Sahara Desert is pretty much mountainous dunes how do you find water in the sahara there is actually a hidden well really yeah there is there's a hidden well of pure water in the middle of the dunes naturally there yeah naturally there which is like a miracle and i did a little film about it and i wrote a blog about it because it was like it was like a miracle to come across that well but in the more general sense because we we literally walked from well to well and some of them were dried up and some of them were closed but on the whole, you look, there are signs, which, of course, the menu, I didn't know. Um, and there's lots of different signs. And number one best way is to ask a nomad. Yes. I mean, that is your mm-hmm. number one failsafe. But um, the, the second way is, for example, to look, uh, your, the, it's na- mainly acacia trees in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you see a date palm, that means there's water not too far under the surface. So you mm-hmm. might see a tiny cluster of date palms, so head for that. Or you might see a lot of animal tracks. Mm-hmm. So head for that direction. So it's, it's signs like that. Or you might be in a very stony part and you'll notice that a lot of the stones have been overturned. So the stones are burned black by the sun. Mm-hmm. But if you can kind of see a white or some white trails going towards the same direction, that might be a well. Wow. How fascinating. For me, I just love that whole region. I could, I went there in January for, I don't know, two or three days and I ended up coming back a week later. What, for you, was a highlight of the trip? 
It's a really good question. And I, I give a terrible answer, I think, because actually what was so beautiful about the trip was the rhythm of it. So, you know, every morning, Brahima Halfi is a half of the Quran, so he has learned the whole Quran off by heart. And so he would, and he has a very beautiful voice. So every morning I would wake up to the sound of the prayers. Um, and then I'd get my water to wash, have breakfast, load the camels, set off, walk for four to five hours, bivouac, have lunch. I would write in the afternoon. We'd, then we'd have supper together. And again, go to, you know, the prayers would be, would be chanted and then go to bed. And it was the, that kind of rhythm. So you were always outdoors. You were with your camels. You were up at sunrise. You were in bed shortly mm-hmm. after sunset. The companionship of the men. Yeah. There's the four of us in the tent. Uh-huh. Nothing to do but tell riddles, tell jokes, tell stories. Occasionally we play cards. But really it was about that kind of companionship. Yeah. Um, sharing, sharing the stories. And I think that, that was really the highlight of the trip, learning about their lives yeah. and living in that very beautiful way. It's very simple when all you have to do is walk four to five hours a day and then live around that walking, mm-hmm. around that journey. It's so simple and so clear that it gives you lots of space spiritually, emotionally, mentally to expand. So I know when I come off of an event or something that's you know, really been taking up a lot of my time or whatnot, um, I go into a bit of a, I call them the post-festival blues, like if I've been working on a festival or whatnot. I can imagine after 81 days together, my goodness, then returning back to your home in the mountains where you have more than one bar of 3G, that must have been so hard, no? Well, it was even, it was even odder than that because actually I, I literally, we had to finish the trek in time because I was speaking at a literary festival in Glasgow and then launching my book in London because I've just written a new book which came out on, yeah, two weeks after the walk. Wow. So I had to go to London for the launch. So my Thousand and One Nights, I feel I ought yeah. to give it a plug, by yeah. Simon Schuster, which is Tales and Adventures from Morocco. Uh, so I had a lovely time. So I actually had all these lovely things to do, which yeah. were all around launching a book, which is, mm-hmm. which is like a huge celebration after all that work. Mm-hmm. And it was very different because I was then able to go if you like, over to Scotland and then over to London and, I don't know, proselytize about Morocco and say how wonderful it is. And, you know, the book is all full of sunshine and happiness and light. So I think that really helped me. Um, And now I've come back and I'm still in that kind of, slightly in that space of promoting and talking about it and doing lots of articles. Um, So that's been really good. But your point is a good one. And there are the blues. There's definitely the post-expedition blues. And I really miss my men terribly. So fortunately, I'm going to see them in about two weeks. Oh, really? Are you going to have a tour with them? Uh, Yeah, Yeah. I am. I'm looking forward to it. I'm doing, I'm joining them for a short part of a, of the Transhumans. So they're doing Mm -hmm. their annual migration. Adi's doing the annual migration with his family and his Mm -hmm. flocks um, to the summer pastures. So Mm -hmm. I can't join them for the whole thing, unfortunately, but I'm going to go for a couple of days and meet Adi's mama. I have presents for her and find out what a naughty boy he was as a child. (laughs) And Brahim and Brahim are both on that trip. So we will get to all be together again. Oh, what an amazing experience that's going to be. It'll be so lovely. Um, I love that you felt like so taken care of uh, by the men that like you were traveling with and they played such an important role because on my food tours, people often ask me like, what's it like here being a woman? And 
I have to say I have the same experiences as you. Like the the people that work with me, the men, I feel like they're like brothers to me. Um, so kind, so gentle, so caring, like in a way that I've never felt that in North America. Well, so when I arrived to meet the men, um, and I was worried before I went, I thought, look, they so they don't speak any English or any mm-hmm. French. Uh, uh, no, that's not true. Brahim Boutroum speaks French. But I do speak Arabic, mm-hmm. and um, I learned quite a lot of Tashlihit on the trip because Adi only speaks Tashlihit. Mm-hmm. So that was really fun. But when I arrived, they gave me my Arabic name, which was Zahra, which means flower, mm-hmm. and also has the root of to be lucky. And then we were walking along one day, and Brahim Halfi said to me, he said, Zahra, we only have one flower. We have to tend her very carefully. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So they were just, yeah, taking care of, such good care of you. And- they took amazing care of me yeah. and I also felt completely supported and they would always look for things to show, because they knew I liked to find things mm-hmm. and see things. So they'd be looking for things to show me and explaining everything. Brahim would be reciting to me from the Quran and explaining the meanings. Mm-hmm. Other Brahim would be teaching me how to cook pizza in the desert. Um, Adi would like go searching for little rocks and fossils to bring to me. So I was absolutely spoiled. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that experience, I, I don't think I'm alone in that in Morocco. As yeah, you said, yeah. mm-hmm. it really is that generosity of spirit, that kind of care for other people has been such a lesson for me mm-hmm. because then, of course, you want to give it back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tashlahit is an Amazir language and you... How would you say you, language-wise, how are you in that Tashlahit? <laughs> slowly, slowly, the camel goes in the pot. <laughs> See, that's why I ask you a camel <laughs> um, Oh, my goodness. So I, I like languages, so I tried mm-hmm. to learn, and I, I felt I made really good progress on the mm-hmm. trip. I got to conjugate my first verb, which was a quite an exciting oh. moment for me. Um, and all my vocabulary, of course, is kind of nomad, wilderness-related. Elbaz, the eagle, the gazelle, you know, all the things that I saw and experienced. Um, and then I got back to my village in Imlil, which is also Tashlahit speaking, and I was practicing my, all my new phrases, and they were like, no, you say it like this, because it's a different, different dialect. It's different dialect. Wow. So, I mean, that was quite disheartening, but I am not giving up. Mm-hmm. I'm just starting again. And all I've done is in my Tashlahit book, which I'm writing, because, um, of course, there's no actual books, there's no yeah. online resource, so you just have to write everything down in a notebook and try and work out what it means. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing one colour for my desert and eight bugmez Tashlahit and one colour for my Imdil Tashlahit. I mean, that is impressive because the Tashlahit alphabet is completely different even from the Arabic alphabet. So if you're writing it... Bravo. That's like truly an adventurer, you know, scoping out the the (laughs) land of languages. So tell me a little bit, like you've just released this book. My Thousand and One Nights. So um, I chose the word, I chose the title My Thousand and One Nights because there's a very famous Arabic book called Mm -hmm. Shahrazad. And the story is that every night the Sultan would take a new wife. And then, because he'd been betrayed by his first wife, he would kill her before dawn. So Scheherazade was a very good storyteller. So what she did was, 
instead of sating his lust, she sated his lust for stories. She, she would wind a tale, but she would leave a cliffhanger and not finish it till the next day so he didn't kill her. So that's why I chose that title, My Thousand and One Nights. Um, and really it's Tales and Adventures from Morocco. So it's a whiz around the country because I've lived here for five years now. And I started writing it when I'd been here a thousand and one nights. And it's, you know, my adventures in Marrakesh, what it's like to live in Marrakesh, how you get proposed to by a taxi driver, how to bargain for a carpet, and also quite a lot of running stories and adventure stories because I've done a lot of those things. So, for example, my desert chapter, I, I talk about what it's like to do the Marathon des Sables because running through the desert, carrying all your own stuff, it's quite a weird way to experience the desert in one way, but in another way, I felt it really echoed the physical hardship and the kind of down and dirty nature of what it used to be like for the great caravans mm -hmm. who were crossing the desert. Because if you're doing something very physical in such a harsh environment, you have an automatic kind of link to that past when people crossed by foot and they were thirsty and they were hungry and it was hard. Yeah. So you've released a book, finished an 81 day adventure. Um, you're gearing up, you're going to do the full month of Ramadan. Inshallah. What else would an explorer like you like to add to that list? Well, I mean, the bad news about adventuring is it's completely <laughs> addictive. Yeah, it's it totally addictive. And um, I'm, I've got some small adventures planned already. So I'm going to run the Trans Atlas Marathon in mm -hmm. May. No, that's not right. In June. Mm -hmm. After Ramadan. Uh, straight after Ramadan. Yeah. So that is run by the Hansel Brothers, mm -hmm. who are famous for being the champions of the yes. Marathon des Sables. And it's a great race. It's a race across the Atlas Mountains. And there's two things you can do. You can do the full one for which you need to be a supreme athlete. So I'm doing the half. Nice. So it's around kind of 25 kilometers a day running over the Atlas Mountains and you get to mix with all the wonderful Moroccan runners because it's a really Moroccan race, as well as the lovely foreigners who come. Mm -hmm. And it's a real experience. So I'm doing that. In July, I'm going up to Upkal again and then to the desert, I hope, with um, Education for All, taking 30 young Moroccan girls, teenage girls, to have their first experience of hiking and hopefully to inspire them to see what's, you know, because it's not so normal here for Moroccan women mm -hmm. um, to hike. I mean, I think it's gonna be mayhem, 30 <laughs> teenage girls who've never hiked before. I mean, they'll be fit because they're from the, from the yeah. village, but, you know, taking them up to a car, it's gonna be hilarious. So yeah. I'm doing that in July. And then December, I think I'm doing a biking adventure. So I have small things mm -hmm. planned and then I've also got to try and write a book in the meantime, I think. And then um, about the dry experience. So I'm Amazing. putting the proposal into my publisher. And then uh, next year, I need another big one. I need another big fix. Wow. Well, you're inspiring me to do more. Like, I mean, my adventure, I just said to you, I went to Budapest to learn leathersmithing. And you're like, I walked 85 days across the draw. <laughs> adventures is everyone has their own you know, no, know. it doesn't have to be yeah. a physical thing mm -hmm. it's just I mean that's just happens to be that I like to explore yeah. geography yeah. you know and as I say the 81 days but you know we did have cake yes 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 so <laughs> no I I think everybody's got the adventurer in them and mm -hmm. I'm I like I'm all about unleash your inner adventurer so if listeners uh, want to pick up a copy of your new book my thousand and one nights where can they do so well, of course, they can do it on Amazon or mm -hmm. any good bookshops in the UK at the moment. But And I'm hoping that we'll be getting some over here to Morocco. Um, so Amazon is the best place. And if you want to do a bulk order, just get in touch with me. So maybe a book launch in Morocco. 
If you're also a fan of getting off the tourist trail and planning to be in Marrakesh, join us for one of our Tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours. On our Tasting Marrakesh Gilis tour, we explore some of the 20th century architecture in Marrakesh, stop at some of our favorite art galleries housed in Art Deco gems, and wander through parks and religious buildings that surprise visitors who dare to venture beyond the Marrakesh Medina. We chat history, eat street food, and shop. You know, some of my favorite things. But don't just take it from me. Condé Nast Traveler recently included this tour in its roundup of 10 cool things to do in Marrakesh. Our website is tasting-marrakesh.com for more details. That's Marrakesh with a C-H. All of our tours are private and bespoke, so we take you only to the places that interest you. But for now, it's time to say see you in two weeks, when I'll be sharing more tales from the inspiring and creative personalities who never cease to amaze me here in Morocco. In the meantime, if you want to discuss a collaboration or partnership, please feel free to get in touch via my website, mandyinmorocco.com. And if you're a fan of Why Morocco, I would be so grateful if you would rate and review this podcast on your favorite channel, or spread the love by sharing on your social media networks. Just don't forget to tag me at Mandia Morocco so I can thank you for your efforts. Until next time.